Don't lose sight of the fact that once you have effective ex extinguishment, things get better throughout the building virtually immediately. I mean, it's literally within seconds. That's what's creating the problem. You, you don't have victims if you don't have fire. Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives firefighters the information they need in about 20 minutes. Before we get started today, just a note. Although we say that we're in Los Angeles for convenience, we're actually based in Pasadena. That's important because if you've been keeping track of the news, you know there is a fire called the Bobcat Fire in the mountains just north of Pasadena. Right now, the sky around here looks, as more than one person has put it, apocalyptic. It's orange, and if you can see the air, you know the air quality is bad. Here's to the wildland firefighters and their city structural counterparts who are working the bobcat fire as hard as they can, using aircraft, dozers, and digging hand lines. To all you men and women, Godspeed, let's hope nobody gets hurt, and let's also hope the property loss can be kept to a minimum. Now, let's get started. There is always an ongoing discussion about how aggressive firefighters should be at a structure fire. Inevitably, the argument gets into interior attacks versus transitional. That whole line of discussion bypasses a really important question, though which is, how do lives get saved fastest? Today's guest says the answer to that question is, put the fire out first. If that sounds like an old school answer, you're right, because this guy is old school, but he also has some very modern thoughts. Peter Van Dorp is vice president of the International Society of Fire Service Instructors. He's also a member of the advisory board for the UL's Firefighter Safety Research Institute. Pete had a 33-year career with the Chicago, Illinois Fire Department, where he ended up ultimately as chief of training. In 2013, he moved to the Algonquin Lake in the Hills Fire Protection District, where he worked for five years as assistant chief and then chief of the department. And Pete Van Dorp joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Doing well, thanks. You wrote an article a while back about mounting an intelligent interior attack. What does that phrase mean? I don't know that it has a meaning, but I was playing on the aggressive interior attack phrase, which is used a lot, um, with good reason. You know, and I was that a little bit because... Um, what I was talking about, or what the article was meant to talk about, was the work that UL uh, had been doing um, in firefighter research, firefighting research, and fire dynamics research, and how to make use of that knowledge, right, 
uh, on the fire ground to make better decisions. And so let's apply our brains to this as well as our brawn and our emotion. And um, that's really all that was meant to do. As I looked into it a little further, I learned that you learned that the key in this is coordination between engine and truck operations. So what should be the mission of the first in engine? Yeah, so that, that was an interesting thing that I, that I first heard. Just, just taking that approach to it, right, was this guy that I, I taught with and worked with. He was my battalion chief for a while named Ray Hoff on the Chicago Fire Department. And when Ray was teaching a, a group of new lieutenants tactics, he would say, okay, what's the mission of the first new engine? And everybody would usually talk about, you know, get water on the seat of the fire, cover exposures, whatever. And Ray says, those, those are actions. I want to know what your mission is. And all he was trying to do is get guys to broaden their approach to things, right? And, and, and he would say, is to establish and maintain a means of egress from the building, right? Get a beachhead, okay? I mean, it, sometimes it's patently obvious. That's where the fire is. Go get it. Other times, you really don't know, right? But what do you do in the meantime? Get a beachhead. Establish and maintain a means of egress from the building. That allows you, if you got egress, you also got ingress. So that allows everybody else to do their thing. So that was his approach. And then he'd, he'd follow it up with what's the mission of the first new truck. And a lot of guys would be talking about forcible entry, ventilation, you know, truck activities. He'd say, okay, that's great. Those are activities. But your mission, the mission of the first new truck is to support the mission of the first new engine. And his point was everybody's job on the fire ground is to get that nozzle to the seat of the fire. That has to be the, because if that's not happening, things continue to get difficult, more difficult, right? You're, you're not winning until that happens. And it's everybody's job on the fire ground to get that nozzle where it needs to go. Because once that happens, things get easy, relatively speaking. But I noticed that you're saying that putting out the fire comes before rescuing victims. Why is that? That's what's creating the problem. You, you don't have victims if you don't have fire. And the research is kind of interesting, right? And, and it's really, we shouldn't be having a debate or a discussion about what's more important, right? I mean, these things have to happen together. And the point is, don't lose sight of the fact that once you have effective ex extinguishment, things get better throughout the building virtually immediately. I mean, it's literally within seconds. When you turn that engine off, when you turn that, that poison-producing engine off, the natural convection currents within the building start to clear that building, even prior to ventilation, almost immediately. So you're, you're buying that victim time when you get water on that fire. And that's why it has to, to, to be this priority, right? Because that's what it do, does the most good for the most people in the least amount of time is effective water on the fire. And, and the research is starting to substantiate that. Right? It's not just my opinion. It, it's, there, there's numbers behind it now. And we need to inform ourselves about these numbers so we can make better decisions. I don't want anybody to do something because I said so. I want them to figure it out on their own. And that was that intelligent, you know, interior attack approach. Why do you think so many firefighters these days want to debate how to be aggressive instead of learning when to be aggressive and why? I don't know. Is that really the case? Uh, you know, I, I hear it. I hear people say that. The guys I encounter, it's not that. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I don't, and I don't, that big a debate that there really is so many. I think there's a lot of noisemakers, right? We live in an information age. Anybody with a computer can be an expert, get, you know, have, a, have their own website and all that kind of stuff. 
so there's a, there's some noise being made about it, but but when you encounter and engage and train and talk with average Joe firefighter, I, I don't think there's a an issue. I don't think there's a problem. They they get it. They especially the younger guys. They get it. They want to know. They want to understand. Um, and it's our responsibility, the older generation, the has-beens, um, is to provide them with the information they need to make good decisions. That's what we owe them. Yeah, I'm not, not sure if there's a... The well, you know, it does seem that when you look at what they say online, which granted is a keyboard in that reality, it's some of the older guys who seem to be saying the young kids today are too cautious. They want to think everything through. I don't know. I, I think that the, the time for thinking everything through, I, I get that where that's coming from, right? The time for thinking everything through is on the training ground and at the kitchen table. Um, the, the time for action is, is on the fire ground, right? Um, in, in, in essence, you know, we know from teaching leadership and leadership models and decision-making models in emergency situations is that you really don't make a decision on the fire ground. You, you've made that decision ahead of time through your training, through your education, and you're, you're implementing a series of decisions, um, you know, and, and making, you know, alternating between them and all that kind of stuff. But I, I get where that's coming from, right? Is that you, you can't pull up on the fire ground and overanalyze things. And, but there is a time for that. And the time for that is, is when you're educating yourself and when you're doing your training. Prepare yourself to make that quick decision on the fire ground and, and you'll be fine. So I, I, I can, like I said, I can get where it's coming from, uh, but I think sometimes it's, it's misplaced. My, one of the things that I'm fond of harping on is, you know, my, my dad was a firefighter. Um, and so he was a firefighter from 1959 to 1999. Wow, he saw a lot of changes. Oh, he saw a lot of changes, and they fought a lot of fires without SCBAs. I mean, these are the tough guys we're trying to, you know, that, that we're supposedly trying to emulate. And, you know, you, you didn't crawl down that hallway without an SCBA. You had to cool that fire down first, you know. Um, and, you know, you just can't – I'm not taking anything away from them. They were tough son of a guns, but – you can't breathe 200 degree air. It's just not. So, you know, a lot of what we're learning is we're relearning what they intuitively knew, right? Fires are hot, <laughs> stinky, smoky, um, damp messes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you've got a, um, and, and that's an interesting thing, right? Our gear has gotten so good. This aggressive attack, this crawling right up on top of the fire, is something we learned to do when we got SCBAs and made it mandatory on the fire ground. And it's not a bad thing, but it comes as a, at a cost, right? Is that you, you get a little divorced from your environment. Um, just because you can take it doesn't mean that your victims can take it, right? So, you know, I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. I'm being aggressive. I'm getting in there and doing it. But the civilian isn't wearing what you're, what you're wearing. So if whatever it is you're doing isn't the fastest way to get water on that fire, you might not be doing the right thing. Speed is so important, you know, with, with all the caveats about, you know, do it, do it safely, do it deliberately, you know, don't run headlong, head down kind of thing. But speed is important. Effective speed is so critically important on the fire ground, especially for that nozzle. That's, what's, that's what has to happen now is water on the fire. The faster you can make that happen, the better things get. Well, I think the phrase is move with a purpose. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm fine with I, I think sometimes, you know, we over, 
we overstayed all this. How you got to say it? Speed is important, and we we understand you have to do it safely and effectively. Um, and 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 you really you're not doing it. Hurry isn't the same as speed. I, I think it's implied that moving with the purpose. You're you're absolutely right. You know because you don't get any do-overs, right? And I mean, anybody that's had any fire gun experience at all has led out to the wrong location, right? Misjudged where the fire was, put themselves in. And, and undoing that <laughs> and getting back to where you need to be is extraordinarily difficult and takes forever, right? So, yeah, you, you don't want to be headlong, head down, not paying attention into making a mistake, but you've got to be quick, you know? And you get, like you said, move with a purpose. Now, you talk about how dangerous things were for your father's generation. And they were, there's no doubt. But what about the factors that make today's firegrounds a little more dangerous places to be than they were in the past? Yeah, I'll I tell you what, their, their world was more dangerous in the sense that they were, they were undermanned. They didn't have very good equipment and it was chronically more dangerous. I mean, those guys didn't survive their careers. They were, you know, my, my dad's still alive and he's one of the few of his generation. Most of them died in their sixties from cancer and heart attacks and and all that stuff because of their exposures. But the the challenge that we have today, that the plain, simple, unavoidable fact of the matter is is that fire growth and development is faster than ever before. As we've switched our built environment our lives. I mean, I, I ask guys all the time, name me something in your house that's not made out of plastic predominantly, right? You know, and, and it's hard to come up with, right? Maybe the dining room table. Okay. But that's coated in polyurethane. So you got that going, you know, the, the toilet's probably the last piece of porcelain in your bathroom. Everything else is a, you know, synthetic. So we're, we're immersed in this petroleum and it burns faster than ordinary combustibles. And it has more energy. It has more stored energy, higher heat of combustion than ordinary combustibles. So so there's more fuel. And then on top of that, we're building, we're engineering. We always have been engineering the excess structure out of our, our houses, right? The excess material. We've always done log cabins and haven't for hundreds of years, but we're getting really, really good at engineering the excess mass out of our buildings. So the, the buildings have less mass, which means they're less fire resistant. That, that's just, doesn't really matter what you make it out of. If it's less massive, it's going to be less fire resistant. Francis Brannigan helped us understand that decades ago. So you got more fuel, less mass, and that means things are going to go to hell in a handbasket just that much quicker. And that's what's making our fire grounds more dangerous is, is it's the, the environment is less forgiving than it was in the past. And so our, the decisions we make and being able to make good decisions is more critically important than ever before because you don't get a chance to do it again. You know, my dad's generation, they could <laughs> They could screw it up and say, oh, shit, you know, let's get around to the other side and, and get away with it, if you will, more, more often than we can because of the change in the environment. So uh, good decision making is critically important. Do you feel like that generation had more people, if not more resources? You know, it depends where you were. It's kind of funny. You know, you see these pictures with six or seven guys on a ladder truck and things like that. But that didn't always take place. And, I, and I'll tell you, that was probably... I can't speak for the, you know, the whole country, but I can speak for the Chicago and the Chicago area. And I think it was true, generally speaking. So post-World War II, right, into the 50s and, and early 60s, you know, that's where these guys got employed. And the cities were booming and the economy was booming and, and, you know, public employment rose 
to a large extent to accommodate the influx of all these returning soldiers, right? And to get, you know, the economy moving and all that kind of stuff. So you had this spurt, I think. But then as you get into the the mid to late 60s and 70s in places like Chicago, they had man, they were running three-man engines in Chicago in the 60s and 70s in a lot of places. They just stopped hiring. You know, you had a lot of inflation. Cities were strapped for cash. So it wasn't all that universal, right? We had this assumption that, you know, but I think it was a very brief, relatively brief period of time where you had that excess manpower. And part of that was because it was a much more manual job then, right? No hydraulic tools, no SCBAs, no power saws. Anybody that's ever tried to actually open a roof with an ax, like, like a flat roof. And I, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean bust a little hole in it. I, I mean, open up a flat roof, three inches thick of built up tar, with an ax. I mean, that takes many, many guys because you just have to, right? You can only swing that thing so many times, right? And then the next guy started and you took a little break and then you jump back in again. I mean, so when the job was that manual, yeah, you had more people, you know, um, but it didn't last. At least it didn't last in, in Chicago. They were, they were short of manpower. Well, it hasn't lasted now. Most agencies, it seems like, have three-man engines, whether they're oh, volunteers yeah. or career. Right. Where I worked, you know, my the last part of my career, I worked in Algonquin and Lake in the Hills. And, I mean, we ran three-man engines and backed them up with a two-man ambulance, you know, cross-trained firefighters. And hopefully that ambulance was around when you needed them so you had the extra manpower. And I, I tell you what, it, it's, it borders on criminality. I mean... <laughs> We all know that that's not enough people, but there's also the, it's just a plain economic fact. You know, some communities simply will not support more than that. And so you, you struggle. Takes you back to <laughs> making intelligent decisions, right? It sure does, because if they thought it through, they would realize that there's more to it than just paying guys to be at the firehouse. It's when, when oh, yeah. you actually need them that it counts, and then it's too late. And, you know, we're preaching to the choir here with this audience. We, we all understand it. But, that, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the fire chief's job is to make that argument, right? I mean, if you're going to be an administrator in the fire service, you need to be preparing yourself to, to stand in front of the public and make those arguments in a way that they'll appreciate them. That, that's what you get paid to do as a fire chief. And, and sometimes we don't prepare ourselves for that change in roles, so which is taking us off our topic today, but maybe bring me back some other time and I'll <laughs> rave about that. Yeah, it's a different world now, that's for sure. Okay, Pete Van Dorp, thanks for joining me today on Code 3. Man, hey, thanks for having me, Scott. I really appreciate it. Take good care. Well, that was kind of a walk down memory lane, wasn't it? Still, Pete's got a point. If you get the fire out fast, that changes the whole game. Do you agree that it takes priority over search and rescue? You can leave your comments on our website at code3podcast.com slash rescue. There's links to more info there as well, so check it out. And if you want to get a little discussion started about priorities or the good old days, just tell the firefighter about this podcast and watch the sparks start flying. If you do, it'll help me out too because word of mouth is the best way to get more people listening to a show like this. So spread the word. Thanks. Alright, that's it. That's all for the smoke-filled edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. With any luck, I'll be back next week with more. If not, you'll know what happened. 
I'm Scott Orr, and until then, especially you wildland firefighters, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.